0: This is the documentary in one from RTE in Ireland. A quick note to say that the documentary in one is now available for sponsorship, both on radio and podcast. If you're interested, email documentaries at rte.ie for more information. And now to today's story Felix Gretterson lost both arms in a work related accident in Iceland in 1998. After years struggling with the consequences, he turned his life around and now plans to make medical history when he receives the world's first full double-arm transplant. Narrated by Charlotte Devlin, this is Felix.
1: Appel en cours. Communication. Hello? Hi Felix, it's Charlotte. Hi Charlotte, Come on in.
0: Bonjour, I'm Charlotte Devlin, and originally I'm from Glenegeary, County Dublin. Ah, hello little doggy. What a welcome! For the last 15 years I've been living in Lyon, the third largest city in France. I'm walking down a leafy driveway towards a beautiful 18th century French mansion which has recently been renovated into flats. Hi Felix! I'm here to visit my good friend. Felix Gretterson, who I've known for five years. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Pretty good, thank you. Big day today, Felix?
2: Yeah, 20 years. Can you imagine?
0: He's from Reykjavik in Iceland. He's in his mid-40s. And he looks like a medium-build Viking, bearded and handsome.
2: Still here. Still waiting.
0: It's January 12th, 2018. A big anniversary for Felix 20 years ago today, his life changed dramatically. He's waiting for it to change again, just as dramatically.
2: You want some coffee?
0: Love a cup of coffee.
2: Inshallah, do you have to reach for the cups?
0: The reason I need to reach for the cups... These little ones, Felix?
2: Well, if you want little
0: ones... ...is because on this day, 20 years ago, Felix lost both of his arms from the shoulders down while working as an electrician in Iceland.
2: I can only use those with the handles.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, trust me for taking the one with the no handles. In 2013, he moved from Reykjavik to Lyon, which is a world centre for pioneering transplant surgery. uh, Felix is waiting to receive the world's first ever complete double-arm transplant. Grafting donor arms from the tops of the shoulders to the tips of the fingers has never been done before. So, Felix will be making medical history.
2: You know, 20 years ago I should have been dead. I was not supposed to live through the night. They never expected me to be alive the day after, so it's a good day.
0: He must live in Lyon while he waits for the transplant.
2: I'm I'm living on borrowed times now 20 years, so that's pretty positive. I wouldn't be living in France, I wouldn't have my dogs, I wouldn't have my wife, you know. There are a lot of good things about it the
3: third second you say you know. <laughs> and I told you That's
0: so. Sylvia, Felix's wife. They met in Lyon three years ago.
3: I am originally from Poland. I moved to France 10 years ago and I am a yoga instructor. We met through um, English speaking groups in a bar. And uh, I just uh, came talk to him because I was um, intrigued by, uh, by his prosthesis.
0: Because Felix has practically no arms at all, prosthetic arms have very little to attach onto. So he's limited to having basic, heavy, artificial arms. The right arm ends with a hook and the left with a silicon hand. Both are attached to his body by a shoulder harness.
3: From very early from our conversation, I just found him quite inspiring. It was very interesting to talk to him.
2: I, I noticed her as soon as he walked into the room. Her appearance appealed to me immediately. And then we just clicked. And she left at my jokes. And that's very important too. <laughs> yeah.
3: It's like you don't know what life brings you. And life brought me this uh, person that I fell in love that happened to be missing two arms. This love, it just became natural, you know. Before Felix
0: met his wife, Sylvia, his mum, Gullah, was his primary pair of arms. So when he moved to France, Gullah moved with him. Nowadays, she lives in a flat upstairs in the mansion. And today, I'm invited for lunch.
2: OK.
0: Say hello to Ireland, it's... Hello to Ireland. I've been recording with Felix for two and a half years, I've never known him with arms, and I'm still putting my foot in it. I don't know how it tastes, so... Where would you like me to sit? Here. Or is that not more comfortable for you? No,
1: I'm, I'm feeding him. Oh, of course I am.
0: We rarely think about how much we use our arms, hands and fingers. To lift a child, do housework, to eat, text, to scratch...
1: He's clever, my son. Uh, he's not as stupid as he looks. No. <laughs> no, he's not as stupid as he looks. Well, well it's hard to be that stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We moved here to France and uh, we stayed in RBNB to begin with for six weeks.
0: Initially, they thought the surgery would happen within a few months of their arrival.
1: We are still waiting four and a half years later.
0: Waiting and waiting has been a big part of Felix's journey towards his new arms. Luckily he's very productive, he's always up to something and he has business interests in Iceland.
1: He said, I will have arms in later on. He was talking about it when he was laying on the hospital.
0: Felix's parents have put their life in Iceland on hold to support his dream to have this transplant surgery.
4: Of course, it has changed our life a lot.
0: This is his dad, Gretar.
4: We are getting old. We are have, having a home, both in France and in Iceland. And we try not to think much about it. We just take the day as it is, and, and I'm just hoping that we find some new arms as soon as possible.
1: I have three sons... No matter which son had had this accident, I would always stand by them. I really love all my sons, so I would do everything for him. And I mean everything.
0: When the accident happened 20 years ago, Felix was 25.
2: My teenage years were, were a little wild. When I was 20, my girlfriend at the time got pregnant with our first daughter... I thought that it was a good time to get my act together and and went to school, started to learn to be an electrician and and started working for the power company Reykjavik. And I really loved this job.
0: His job was to carry out maintenance on the high-voltage power lines and the tall wooden poles, what Felix refers to as pylons, that carry these power lines across the countryside.
2: And this was Something that I saw my future in, I was happy, I was, life was going well. and We had Diljau, the younger daughter, in October that, that year. Life was bright for this little family until 12th of January, 1998. Uh, the day started a little weirdly because, you know, I overslept. So I missed the breathing in the morning. We were sent to work on a high-voltage line that had burned during the night.
0: This line, containing enough electricity to power 500 homes, had come loose and dropped onto a wooden pole, causing it to burn down.
2: Our mission was to change this pylon and walk the line, pylon after pylon. We go up to the top and you just grab the line... And just shake it, see if it's loosening. Of course, you don't work on this unless you take all power off it.
0: In January, weather in Iceland can be pretty extreme. Freezing temperatures, strong, icy winds, and it's dark most of the day.
2: It was minus something degrees. The wind was in my face. The ground was frozen like rock. So I'm walking with my face down, getting the wind in your eyes. And just looking up, you just walk from pylon to pylon. We have these special shoes that we used to walk up there. They have some uh, spikes in them. And then you have a leather belt around your waist. And attached to it with hooks is some rope. You put it around the pylon and attach it back to the belt. So when you step into the shoes, you can lean backwards. And the rope is holding you, and this is how we walk up there, and, and because we need our hands to work.
0: The rope that Felix refers to is also called a lifeline.
2: To get up to the top, you ha- always have to release this uh, lifeline, walk the last one or two metres, and then attach it again. I had released this lifeline. Then you take two steps up, and you grab the wires. And pull yourself, because usually we just go up and we sit on the tee, And then we can work on the, on the isolators, attaching the wires.
0: Missing the briefing earlier that morning was critical for Felix. There was confusion about how far he needed to walk the line for. He should have stopped when he came to a river.
2: I go across the river.
0: Just across the river runs a second line of power and wooden poles... Coming from another direction.
2: Uh, visually, if you're standing from where we started, it's in a perfect line. You don't see it from the ground. You know, you have to be looking up to see, oh, this is another line.
0: Two poles, one with a dead line and the other with a live line, stand 10 meters tall, one directly behind the other.
2: But, you know, I went into the wrong one. So after going up to a few of them, grabbing the wire, you feel kind of secure, you're just working on a deadline. But then you go up to the one that has power on it and do the same thing. So I just grabbed the wire and the lights went out. A guy that was working with me, who was two poles behind me, he said, like, he saw it happen and he thought there was somebody, you know, welding Behind us, because there was so much uh, fireworks going on, but that was my arms burning. But it saved my life that I already had uh, loosened up the, the rope because I fell down. That's what saved me from just burning up like a candle in there. Otherwise, I would just been there until nothing's left. So I fell down. I broke my back in three places, fractured my neck, And my arms were just on fire. Uh, I don't remember hanging on the wire. I remember lying uh, on the ground, waiting for the ambulance. I never lost consciousness. It came to me later than I remembered this guy who was working with me. He was just stumbling over me and just, you know keeping my attention, talking to me, and, and I was kind of winching, lying there in just a shock. I, I wasn't aware of kind of anything. I just remember the face and, you know, the soothing voice, and it was good to have him there. Rest of the guys were running with their helmets into the river and getting water to, to put the fire out of my arms. I don't remember what I was thinking particularly, and, you know, it happens just so fast and it's so much. All I felt was pain in my stomach. The body kind of shuts out everything else. That's the last thing I remember until three months later, I'm coming to consciousness.
0: Felix, I remember the first time I met you and you said to me, it was very difficult finding parking, and I went to myself, finding parking? Felix, driving a car? I mean, how do you operate a car with no arms?
2: I have this hook here, and that's all you need to open the door. When I, when I buy a car, uh, I have to find a car that is adaptable for me. It's automatic cars. The steering wheel is on the floor. It's connected to the main steering wheel. There's no clutch. So my left foot is completely free for the steering. So the right foot is for the brakes and the, and the gasoline. And it's just connected with a chain up to the main steering wheel. So everybody can drive the car, uh, including me. And then they uh, put in the headrest here. There's the direction lights. I have the splash and the windshield wipers and the high beam. So I can do that with pushing buttons with, my, with the back of my head. And that's kind of all you need, you know, to drive a car. There's one uh, downside I can't put on my seatbelt. So I just have to be careful. If not, then somebody can get my organs.
0: It's March 2018. Today, Felix and myself are off to the hospital. I'm not going to lie to you, it is a little unsettling getting into a car with a driver who has no arms. This is very impressive parking, Felix.
2: Well, we're good.
0: We're here to meet hand surgeon Dr Aram Gazarian. He heads up the team of eight surgeons involved in Felix's double arm transplant. In total, 50 people are on this transplant team. (laughs)
5: Bonjour. Bonjour Michel. <laughs> Salut Félix. Madame. Uh, if it's convenient for you, I can try to do it in English. Uh, Félix is the first case of arm transplant in Lyon.
0: Transplanting complete arms, not just at the forearm or just above the elbow, has never been done before.
5: Till now, in Lyon, uh, we have a good experience of forearm transplantation. So, transplantation below the elbow in patients who lost, uh, traumatically, their two hands, but uh, with an elbow uh, still there. Felix is above the elbow, very high.
0: On the day of the operation, surgeons will need to work fast to remove the donor's arms and attach them to Felix. Minimising the length of time the arms are detached with no blood flowing through them will be a key challenge.
5: We think this surgery could be useful if we can achieve an elbow motion because we think that a patient would be much better with an elbow motion even if He has no functional results below the elbow in terms of wrist, finger, mobility, sensibility.
0: It's most likely that Felix won't have perfectly functioning arms after the surgery. It's about improving the quality of his life somewhat. But as it's never been done before, it's risky.
2: Yeah, I mean, I am fully aware of the risk it's not them pushing me onto something, they have made it very clear to me what's involved in this. But So the final decision is always mine. And I make this decision to do this fully knowing the risks. I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I wouldn't try. Nobody is going to survive this life. We all die at the end and I rather ...take the risk of dying doing something that I believe in... ...than just hanging there, too afraid to try anything.
0: Twenty years ago, when Felix arrived at the hospital... ...he was barely alive and was put into an induced coma... ...which lasted for three months.
1: They told us that very many bones in his uh, body was broken... They said, we don't know if he is going to survive. They didn't tell, tell us right away that they would be taking both his arms off. But that came later, that same day.
0: As the weeks went by, his mum Gullah and dad Gretar
1: waited by his bedside. I went there, I think, nearly every day and I sat with him. My heart was so broken and uh, I just asked God every minute, just let him live. Except there came a moment that uh, I asked the God to take him because I couldn't see how anyone could live without arms
4: I was um, thinking of what do I feel is it better if he is going to die or be alive very early I took, I decided for myself I don't care how he is I just want him alive we have to work it out when he wake up
0: Doctors slowly started to take Felix out of the induced coma. It took about 10 days, and Felix was agitated.
2: So they wake you up through, just reduce the medicine gradually, and, and, and I had so much nightmares. In my mind, there was nothing left of me. I was hearing I don't know if it was when they were taking off arms or what, I felt they were sawing me down. I was screaming that I'm still alive. But I just remember nightmares and nightmares and nightmares. I, I feel like it was forever. You know, waking up and and, and seeing family there and I remember the relief When I got conscious enough to realize that I only had lost my arms. And the relief on their faces when I could move my feet because nobody knew until after this time that I wasn't paralyzed.
1: It took 10 days to wake up. So I just talked and talked about everything and nothing. And always telling him slowly what had happened. So it wouldn't be very much shock. But uh, it was a bit hard time because he cried a lot. And of course, we were just both crying.
4: Right away, after he woke up, he was very, very positive. He was smiling and making jokes and all that. From the time he opened the eyes. <laughs> so I think we all decided we were going to be positive.
1: He's amazing. After he was waking up, he showed us very soon that he was going to survive all of this.
0: I love hanging out with Felix and his people. They're so positive and uplifting.
3: Can I help you with anything? No, well, you just can help Felix with eating pancakes. Sure. Yeah.
2: It's always tough in any situation when you don't have arms, Uh, but there's always the choice to focus on the tough thing or the positive thing. And I usually choose to focus on what I can do and I don't look at the limitations I have as something I am dealing with every day, like, oh, I'm so limited. It's just... (laughs) It's just, you know... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you just take a decision. This is impossible, so let's focus on something else and then you just go on with life.
3: This uh, disability makes us create good communication. So whenever we have, uh, we have some argument, some problem, it doesn't last longer than four or five hours because we simply can't afford to be mad at each other for a few days. You know, I help him... Every day uh, with basic situations like shower, toilet, uh, feeding. Then I can't say oh, goodbye and see you tomorrow. It's impossible.
2: Now we've been married for two years, we've been together for three, and never been happier. I kind of love her more every day.
0: The story of Felix moving to Lyon to wait for the world's first ever full double arm transplant began many years ago.
2: That is in May 2007, just home, watching TV, and the late news were, were on, and they were talking about that Jean-Michel Du Bernard, a famous doctor from France who did the first uh, hand transplant in the world, had a lecture in the University of Reykjavik today where he was going over transplant, and I was like, I know this guy, you know, because I, I knew this name. And I knew I just, I have to talk to him. I found the hotel that he was staying. In. And uh, that's how this ball kind of started rolling. I went there and, and met him and asked him, I know I'm not the perfect case, and showed him, you know, my amputation. And uh, I was kind of like, in your opinion, do you think that the time will come that you can transplant whole arms?
0: When Félix put this question to renowned transplant surgeon Dr Jean-Michel Dubarnard, it was 2007.
2: The answer I got was like, we need you to come here. We need to run some tests on you and see for ourselves.
0: Four years later, French surgeons agreed to do the transplant. And two years after that, Félix and his mom moved to Lyon to wait while the transplant team prepared and practised for this pioneering surgery. Finally, in 2017, with everything in place, the search for a compatible donor began. And this search will end with a phone call very similar to a call Felix received last summer.
2: It was an exciting evening, let's say. I put my phone on silent. Uh, You know, I usually don't have it on silent. I'm always waiting for this call. And then in like, you know, it's almost six years since I came here. So I had the phone on silent. So when I came home in the, in the evening, I saw that uh, there was a missed call and message. And the message was, we have found a potential donor.
0: The donor needs to be a suitable match. Same gender, blood type, skin colour and about the same size as Felix.
2: But as it turned out, when they called, they were going to ask me if I was okay that there were some tattoos on the arms. And of course, you know, if they, if, if I get the tattoos for free, then, you know, why not? But, uh, you know, when I called, it had already been settled that uh, the family did not accept. And that's probably the hardest part of this. It's uh, getting the permission from people at a moment like this, when your world just collapsed. And, yeah, it's good to know that there is something happening in the means of finding a donor. And it probably just wasn't the right one. The right one is still clueless about what's about to happen.
0: The accident happened in January 1998, And that July, Felix was transferred from intensive hospital care to a physical rehabilitation centre. Things were about to get worse, much worse, before they got better.
2: I'm told that my liver is pretty damaged after it, but uh, the liver is amazing. It can repair itself. All I had to do was don't eat high-protein food, not eat fat, not drink alcohol... You know, just take very good care of myself and hope for the best. Then I go to this rehabilitation center and out of this cotton that I've been living in, you know, if you are in intensive care in a hospital, everybody's nice to you. It's not that hard. You get morphine and all kinds of medical cocktails. So I was not feeling terrible. When they started to reduce it, I started to search somewhere else for some substances. I didn't know how to deal with this new situation.
0: Although he left the hospital with a positive outlook, his time at the rehabilitation centre was far from rehabilitating.
2: There are people there from accidents. There are, they have a department for people with depression and it's a rehabilitation of all kinds of diseases and, and accidents and traumas. And me and a few other grouped together, you know, it became a little bit like summer camp walking to the bar in the evening and I was so drunk one night, I was walking back, watching the Northern Lights and, and stepped on a ice and, and fell and broke my collarbone.
0: At this stage, he was in big trouble with drink and drugs and needed professional help.
2: This rehabilitation sent me to uh, a drug rehab for a month. They kind of don't have people in my position that need 24-hour care. Also there I kind of got away with more than most, you know, I was the only one who was allowed to smoke in my room and and I needed help with eating, I needed help to go to the toilet, I needed help with a lot of things and it was awkward and uncomfortable and it was, you know I didn't feel good in there and I I didn't feel very motivated to now quit the drugs quit the alcohol and get alive because I didn't see much life waiting for me. I had a wonderful life. I had two little girls. One was f- four years old, one was three months when, when this happens. I had this girlfriend. I kind of lost it all. We broke up. I couldn't take care of my daughters. I had a career that was gone. Everything was gone. And I just didn't know how to deal with that. So drinking seemed like a logical way. And that was my life. Nobody wanted to be me. In September 99, I graduated from this trauma and and I moved to my parents' garage. They had a big house and there was a freestanding garage and and under that was a little apartment that was then connected to their apartment. At this time, there was also a court case suing damages for for this accident, which I actually won. With that, uh, I just went down the drain Uh, money was no obstacle and uh, when you have shitload of drugs you have also shitload of friends i had people coming day and night and when somebody comes we you know get some coke and smoke some weed and and then i just go back to bed until the next one comes and that's a way to not feel anything except the liver wasn't doing very very well and and i got worse and worse and i got yellower and yellower and my skin was yellow and my eyes were yellow and people were horrified watching what was happening
1: when he came home from the hospital he started to use all sort of things and that was really really hard for me to watch he was so yellow children when they saw him they they turned around because his eyes and The tongue and everything was yellow. And the doctor said that his liver was just ruined.
0: Doctors had no idea about his addictions. They couldn't work out why his liver was failing.
2: Then it came to the point that they said, we have to transplant, you need a new liver, this one is not going to make it. Around the same time, I'm sitting alone in my chair and I got this just moment of clarity. If 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 I don't do anything, I am not going to be around for for many more weeks. I talked to this doctor and told him that you know I am not been like absolutely honest with you. Uh, they told me that you know you have to be sober for at least a year until we can consider you as a recipient for a liver transplant. So that's in 2001 that I go into rehab again, and now I'm going on my own accord. I just knew that this had to stop, and I just wanted this to
0: stop. Felix and Sylvia are crazy about their two little dogs. Yoki is a miniature schnauzer, and Jackie is a Jack Russell.
2: Yeah, they're... they always go straight to people's legs because they're used to being pet with the legs and, you know, people often don't understand what they're doing there, but it's...
3: I'm a huge fan of dogs and I'm so happy for Felix that we have dogs because he he spends so much time at home. When I help Felix with shower, uh, they often come after and they help. They lick his legs and they want to help to dry him, you know. It's so, so amazing to, to see this, uh, these creatures, how they adapt to, to his uh, disability. And, and I think they sense that he, he needs this touch and they give him so much love.
2: When you lose your arms, you miss out on all physical touch. with It's like being in a bubble. You know, I have prosthesis and I shake somebody's hand and I, I'm not touching your hand. You kind of don't realise it, how important it is until you lose it. You have two daughters and you can't hold your daughters. It was devastating, you know, never holding their hands, only trying to push your face somehow and and, and kiss them and and cuddle. But, yeah, but you don't do that to anybody else.
0: (laughs) Now Felix's daughters, Rebecca and Díljáu, are adults. They live in Iceland and are very close to their dad.
1: Yeah, Felix loves his daughters, and he has been very good to his daughters. But a lot of good things have come since we came here to Lyon. He's met his wife, he's got his two dogs, and now he has a granddaughter, which he loves, really loves.
0: Felix's life today couldn't be more different to his life five years after the accident, when he finally sobered up.
2: And I was actually starting to feel him a little better. I was still yellow and skinny, and, and, but a little bit better if I could eat.
0: But he was still in desperate need of a liver transplant.
2: Yeah, they made me wait until February in, in, in 2002. And then they saw, OK, we have to put this guy on the list because there was nothing left. For liver transplants for Icelanders, we at this time they were performed in Denmark. And I got the liver transplant, which I thought went very well. I went back to Iceland, came on TV, like, yeah, everything is great, I have a new liver, blah, 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 blah. And a week later, I was unconscious in a plane going back to Denmark with infection in the liver. And uh, exactly to the day, two months after the first transplant, I had to have another liver transplant.
0: The second liver transplant surgery was incredibly tough going.
2: Of all this process, this was the worst time of of this all. You know, I'm coming into the first transplant like seriously, seriously sick. Opening up and, and changing your organ is huge operation and there was just like so little energy left it was so painful now there was just nothing left of me
1: somehow we got through this all, all and uh, when he woke up after the second labor he said mom in one week i'm going to walk over to your hotel and i said my god don't don't even think of it but one week later he walked over
2: i started to feel better, the liver is doing good, my color of my skin is coming back, I'm starting to get some uh, flesh again, energy is coming, and just September 2002 is when my life starts again. Voila.
0: That looks nice, actually, Felix. Looks- uh, what type of spoon do you like? D- this spoon or a bigger spoon? Big, 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 big. Bigger spoon? Yeah. Not this spoon. No,
2: this one is fine. This one? Yeah, well, yeah. Okay, cool. It's just yogurt. Okay,
0: great. Will I mix it up for
2: you. Yes, please. And then we cut one banana and
0: put in it. Oh yeah, no worries.
2: Most people do it. They, they do it, then they are trying to be an airplane. Boom <laughs> and open up for the, <laughs> for the babies. I don't have to do that, Felix. Yeah, no. Do I? I'm a very big boy. I
0: don't boy. Have to force you. <laughs> okay. We're joking around. But I can't imagine what it's like not to be able to eat what I want when I want it. Gosh, we really take arms for granted. Mm. I mean, to, to, Well, know, they
2: are kind of like granted.
0: There's a lot you can't do without arms.
2: Yeah, but there's a lot you can do without them. And I try to focus just on that. Yeah. It's sometimes I don't have anybody, and I have maybe some nuts in a bowl somewhere or something. But that, or, or I'm just hungry until somebody comes and feeds me. It's this is just how it is, and I'm you know better not dwell on it.
0: Sometimes I wonder why would Felix put himself through the ordeal of a double arm transplant? It's such an immense challenge. Quel courage.
2: The head in the cloud expectations you know they are not realistic but if I can feed myself if I can you know take a shower without help go to the toilet go to town get a cup of coffee if I can be on my own without needing any help for extended period of times that I don't need a babysitter that's the things that matter the most
0: With the experience of two liver transplants already under his belt, as it were, Felix is in some way prepared for the double-arm transplant. But, as Dr. Gazarian explains, success is by no means a sure thing.
5: I'm not thinking about failure. Sure, there is a risk of failure. We prepare things we know principally. Uh, what we are going to do, right-hand side, left-hand side. Uh, Surgeons are aware about what uh, is uh, expected from them. We already know uh, what surgeon will be on what side and for what stage of the surgery, donor and recipient. Yes, we may have problems, Uh, major problems, because it's a major surgery. Félix is aware of that, and uh, he know he may die if things are going very wrong. But I'm not expecting that uh, such a uh, major difficulty will occur. I, I, I'm turning um, to Félix, asking uh, what does he expect with this uh, surgery? Well, I'm going to be playing a piano
2: in three years. (laughs) Well, of course, we've been over it many times. You know, I'm I'm prepared for uh, everything. Uh, I'm hoping to get better results than expected, of course. Uh, And I am prepared to do whatever... ...in my power to facilitate the healing process and, uh, you know... But I am, you know, very optimistic in nature, so, you know, I'm expecting spectacular results.
0: Today, it's almost seven years since Felix and his mom arrived in France to wait for his new arms... It's incredible how much he's had to cope with since the accident in 1998. I'm super impressed by his resilience.
2: It's a matter of choice when you have a tragic accident. I was unlucky for a few seconds. But since then, my life is just one blessing after another. The response team that came there, the parents, the friends, the... The opportunities I've had... I mean, i am living in France. I'm on the list to have the first arm transplant in the world, you know. uh, I needed to raise money for it, and, and, you know, a whole nation backed me up. And I choose to have that in front of me when I look at my life instead of this split second where my arms were burning off. It's May
0: 2020... Two and a half years since I started recording with Felix. All of our lives have been interrupted by the coronavirus, including Felix's. For the moment, the search for a donor has been put on hold. But when it resumes, I hope to be right there with him, waiting for his life to change.
2: Eventually we will find a donor. That's just how things go. This is the way of life. People die. It's tragic, but it's a fact and and yeah, and the right one will eventually show up.
0: You've been listening to Felix from the documentary N1. It was narrated by Charlotte Devlin and produced by Charlotte Devlin and Tim Desmond. Until next time, thanks for listening.